created live on Fireside. Welcome to Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe. I am Dr. Laura DeVoe, and welcome to uh, our first show of the new year. Uh, I am thrilled to have you here, and uh, today we are welcoming Dr. Megan Ranney. Um, she is an emergency physician, researcher, and national advocate for innovative approaches to public health. And we're going to learn more about Dr. Ranney in just a moment. Uh, today, prior to the end of the fall semester, the Omicron virus started to make campus leaders pivot once again. Cornell University had over 800 confirmed cases in less than a week, causing the university to move all exams to remote. Each of uh, the semester's, end, excuse me, end of semester events, athletic competitions, and the like were canceled across the country, postponed, or were held without spectators. If we've learned anything from the pandemic, it's that we have tools. We just need to use them. But with Omicron, CDC guidance about isolation has caused confusion, and some campus leaders are seeking to further reevaluate their protocols. Uh, today, we welcome Dr. Megan Rainey. I am going to give her an opportunity to put herself on camera. Uh, Dr. Rainey is an emergency physician. As I said, she holds the Warren Alpert Endowed Professor of Emergency Medicine at Alpert Medical School at Brown University and is founding director of the Brown Lifespan Center for Digital Health. She is also the academic dean at the School of Public Health at Brown University. Dr. Rani's research focus is on developing, testing, and disseminating digital health interventions to prevent violence and mental illness. She has had continuous external funding from federal and foundation grants for over a decade and with over 130 peer-reviewed publications. She serves multiple national leadership roles, including co-founder of the Senior Strategic Advisor or a firm at the Aspen Institute, a nonprofit committed to ending gun violence epidemic through a nonpartisan public health approach. And she's on the president of she is the president of the board of GetUsPPE.org, a startup nonprofit that delivered and donated personal protective equipment to those who needed it. Uh, Dr. Rani earned her bachelor's degree in history of science of uh, graduating summa cum laude from Harvard University, her medical doctorate graduating Alpha Omega Alpha from Columbia University, and her master's in public health from Brown University. She completed her residency in emergency medicine and a fellowship in injury prevention research at Brown. She was previously a Peace Corps volunteer in Cote d'Ivoire, and she lives in Rhode Island with her husband and two children. Thank you for being here, Dr. Rani. It is a pleasure to join you this morning, Laura, or this I afternoon, am, I guess. It's noon I now. Yes, it is afternoon. And uh, well, you know what? I have to tell you, I am thrilled to have you here for two reasons. Number one, in our brief interactions with one another, I feel like we're going to be like super good friends because <laughs> you and I are 
are copacetic on several things, but also I am hearing a lot of chatter about Omicron and how folks are feeling right now. And so uh, I wanted someone here with a level head and you scream level-headed approach. So I'm very excited for that. Uh, for those of you who are new to uh, Fireside, welcome. If you've never been uh, in a room, I want to give you a quick overview. If you go to your bottom left-hand corner, that is your hamburger. The hamburger allows for you to do a couple of things. You can broadcast to the world, which uh, if you click on the hamburger, you will see a globe come up. You can punch that, you can copy it, or you can save it and move it to your various uh social networking opportunities. You can post it on Twitter. You can stream on your LinkedIn, whatever makes sense for you. Uh, the other thing you can do as the show goes along, uh, we will open this up for questions and you will see at the bottom of your screen, a microphone. You can use that to request to come on up on stage and ask a question. And then the last thing you will see on your bottom right hand of your screen is a react button where you can react, you can clap, you can uh, put out a love emoji, you can do whatever. And so, uh, Dr. Rani, you are going to hear potentially some sounds. Uh, don't let those sounds distract you. Those are when people clap or something of that nature. So uh, there you go. So welcome to Office Hours. Uh, Want to start with your perspective on what the Omicron variant brings to the table uh, that is different from past variants. Uh, we know it spreads easier. Uh, uh, which uh, for a tightly packed setting like a residential college makes things more difficult to manage. Uh, what else do you think we need to know? So Omicron, like with with Omicron, as like with so much else across the COVID um, pandemic, you know, here we are entering the third year of this, which seems almost unbelievable. Um, our knowledge is really shifting quickly. I mean, if you think back, we only identified this new variant um, about six weeks ago, it was Thanksgiving morning um, that it was announced to the world. So its transmissibility is the first thing that all of us were aware of, right? The fact that Omicron spreads so much more easily than prior variants, Delta, Beta, Alpha, right? All of these lovely Greek letters. All the Greek letters, yes. <laughs> exactly. It, it makes me wish I had pledged a sorority when I was I, in totally. I would have known them better. <laughs> but not really, yeah. <laughs> Different show. Different show. Different show, exactly. <laughs> um, but so in addition to its increased transmissibility, there's a couple of other things we've learned over the last six weeks. The first is that Omicron evades existing immunity, whether that immunity has been induced by vaccines or by prior infection, more than the prior variants um, of COVID. So if you were previously infected with COVID, you had some resistance to getting infected again. It looks like that's not holding up as well against Omicron. The same thing is unfortunately true for the vaccines, that if you've right. got your two doses of the mRNA or one dose of Johnson & Johnson, it's not going to work as well at protecting you against symptomatic infection, which is why we're urging the booster. Um, when you get a booster, it just tremendously increases um, your body's ability to fight off symptomatic infection. Right. The third thing, though, that we're learning is that Omicron does not seem to cause as severe disease as the prior variants of COVID. 
Um, we think that's largely because it doesn't attack the lungs as much as prior variants, but we're still figuring it out. Right. Um, but, you know, the good news is, is that it, it does seem to be a little bit milder in most of us. But I'll talk about how that there's a little bit of a paradox there as well. So um, go ahead. Go ahead. So I want to talk about one quick thing. So you're you're talking about the the vaccines and how important and and the boosting. And in the last day, I've literally I set my Google alerts for higher ed, okay? And I've seen ding 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 ding, ding all these schools saying you can't come back to campus without a booster. Or when you get here, you're going to be boosted and you're going to be isolated because we want to make sure you've got that. They've got all kinds of different methods. So it is not surprising based on what you're telling me that this is where campuses are going to require that booster piece. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask about is, at some point, I want to put a pin in it, is some of the, the recommendations I'm seeing about when doing a home test now swabbing your throat and not just your nose uh, because what you just said about it not making it down to the lungs is mm -hmm. something that uh, I think requires some consideration but keep going absolutely so and I and I can talk a little bit more about the booster so my own university is as you mentioned I am um, the academic dean at the School of Public Health at Brown we are requiring boosters for all eligible staff students and faculty at this point mm -hmm. um, because you know, even without a booster, you're pretty protected against the worst of it, yeah. severe disease, hospitalization, and death. But if we can reduce the amount of symptomatic disease and transmission, especially right now, given that increased transmissibility of Omicron, reducing symptomatic disease has just, you know, a whole knock-on benefit for mm -hmm. campus and for society. You know, when I think about what is dangerous about Omicron, and I mentioned there's this paradox, right? It's both a little more mild, but it's also more transmissible. We're in this situation right now, which all of you are experiencing, whether at your education, your institute of higher education or just in your everyday life, where so many people are getting sick that it starts to shut things down. Um, my own kids are in public school. Our public schools have stayed open, but it's been a struggle because maintaining adequate adult supervision in school right now is tough because so many of the teachers and staff are out sick. Same thing is true for us as a university. If all of our dining hall staff, if all of our um, faculty, if all of our um, IT staff are out for five to 10 days ill, that means that a lot of our normal operations have to shut down. So there's a big benefit to reducing symptomatic disease for that reason alone. There's also a big benefit because I'm going to put on my ER doc, not higher ed hat there you go. Um, right now. Say that Omicron is 10 times more transmissible and one-tenth as severe. That still means we're going to have the same number of severe disease cases filling up the hospitals and the ICUs. Right. And that's actually exactly what we're seeing. Across the Northeast right now, our hospitalization and intensive care unit stays for COVID are about the same as they were last year at this time, mm -hmm. pre-vaccination. Now, it's mostly right now the people in the hospital and the ICU are mostly the unvaccinated. But the reality is, is that even though Omicron is mild for all of us folks who've been smart and gotten our vaccines, mm -hmm it's still overwhelming the healthcare system. Right. And right. that has its own knock-on effect, meaning that if you have appendicitis or 
break your leg skiing or, you know, whatever, or in a car crash, there's less room at, on the healthcare side to take care of people. And again, from the higher ed perspective, we want to make sure that if our, our students get sick, that there's a place to take care of them. And so reducing right. symptomatic transmission makes sense there as well. I'll say that the last thing around this is that this is why many of our institutions are kind of looking at testing and masking once again, right? Knowing that vaccination is the core, the bedrock of, of um, COVID prevention, that masking is a critical layer on top of vaccination, especially in surges. And then of course, testing and ventilation are critical elements as well. Those things have not changed. Um, I've had discussions with folks in higher ed who are asking me, you know, do masks still work against Omicron? Yes, masks still work against Omicron because of its increased transmissibility. I'm recommending that people up their masking. So use KN95s, KF94s, or N95s. But masks are absolutely still effective. Testing still works. There's a lot of kind of reports out there about testing accuracy. Testing still works. Rapid antigen tests still work to tell you if you're infectious. Yeah, there's some stuff about maybe swab your throat instead of your nose. But in general, those tests work. And ventilation, of course, having good HVAC or HEPA filters or open windows also is an important part of the strategy to get COVID out of the spaces where it is, have fresh air come in. It's our grandmothers, right? My grandma always exactly. Opened the exactly. Open the window. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, I know you're sick, but open the window. But grandma, <laughs> you told me not to go outside with a wet head. That's not the same thing. All right. <laughs> so, so one of the things you just brought up, and and from uh, you know, in one of my lives. Thank you very much. One of my lives uh, was as a vice president for student affairs, and in that role, the the health center reported to me mm. and the student health center, you know, we would, we would go into, you know, my, my health center director was fabulous. She had a public health background. She's been on the show many times. Her name's Beth Grand Petro. And she would always give me my, my monthly stats with what I needed to know. And we would talk about how trends were happening. And, and as we know, at campus centers and uh, health centers on campus, it is very hard to get students in the door to do preventative stuff. And, when they are actually sick, what one of the biggest problems we had, let's take it back to just the plain old flu. Mm-hmm. Students would come and be in their room festering in their own filth and germs for days on end. And then finally, five, six, seven, eight days into this mess, they show up and go, and it's always Friday afternoon at about 435 when we're trying to close the center for the weekend saying, I really, I've, I've been in bed all week and I don't feel well. Um, we learn, I think, from an early age not to take care of ourselves very well. And you see this as, I think, as students are showing up at the health centers on their campuses and even in, and you're seeing it in the ERs, people not knowing how to use this, the, the tools we have adequately at the home front, um, taking a, a home test, masking in a preventative way. Um, and, and I think when we think about what students are, are hearing, and when I talk to, to administrators and they're saying, when students hear it's not as severe, right. they just kind of go, all right, I'm good. I'm 22 years old. I'm invincible. Um, so, you know, I want to shift our attention a bit because now you've got these students who have poor 
kind of decision-making in terms of when to show up at the health center or get assistance. They think they're in, they're invincible. And now we're hearing from the CDC that the recommendation on isolation and quarantine has changed. And so the new guidance moves positive cases from 10 to five days. And lots of people are saying, woohoo, this is great. Going to your point, like we can't have the entire, you know, health, you know, uh, student affairs staff out for, for 10 days straight. We, we need people around to do their jobs. Uh, we need people in the dining hall feeding our students. Um, so it's been welcomed by some, but then there's been a lot of heavy pushback from others there, and, and that sort of thing. Um, if you were giving guidance to a university on this, uh, what are some talking points that will help them not only understand it themselves? Because here's the other piece of pushback I'm hearing from my colleagues is, their staff who are super tired and worn out. And now they're like, well, so hold on a second. You want me to come back in five days because it's better for the operation? They're not appreciating what this all means, okay? Um, so what are some talking points that will help them not only understand it themselves, but also get that message out to the community, whether it be students or the, the folks who serve them? So the new CDC messaging is so confusing. I mean, just the fact that it was revised three times in about a week and a half over the holidays mm -hmm. tells you how confusing it is. Right. So the way that I am simplifying it for folks is thinking about it this way. You have a day where you start having symptoms or a day where you have a positive asymptomatic test. From that point forward, look forward five days. So you have five days out. Are you asymptomatic at the end of those five days? If you have zero symptoms at the end of those first five days, you can go out and about, but to be extra safe, you should wear a high-fitting, a really well-fitting mask whenever you're out and about. So that means you should not be going into restaurants and eating without a mask. You should not be going to playing beer pong with your buddies, what? right? So five days of strict isolation. And then if you are asymptomatic, the next five days out and about with a good fitting mask. Mm -hmm. If you still have symptoms at the end of those five days, you should stay in isolation up until the 10-day period, the original period. So that five days only applies to folks that don't have symptoms. And the reason where that five to 10-day kind of leeway period comes in is that there's an increasing number of studies showing that particularly for those who are asymptomatic, particularly for those who are vaccinated, the period of infectiousness is actually far shorter than 10 days. But as any of us that are scientists know, there's a range in there. And so although 70% of us are not infectious after the five days, 30% of us still are. So that's why you got to wear the mask from days five to 10 if you have no symptoms. Mm -hmm. And if you've still got symptoms, you got to assume you're infectious. Plus, P.S., you should be staying home and feeling better. Right. So don't break isolation until the 10-day period. Now, there's some more complex stuff you could do with requiring negative rapid antigen tests to come back to, but I feel like that's beyond the capability of most of us normal human beings mm -hmm. to think about. And so really mine is five days asymptomatic. You can be out and about with a good fitting mask. If you're not asymptomatic, stay home for the full 10 days. Well, in our campuses, many of them, I, I would say the majority of them have a testing capability. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so our communities are actually a really great space for this kind of thing to 
actually show how it works. Okay, you've got the the mask mandates. I I teach on two campuses with two very different um, COVID protocols um, in terms of masking. And one was very strict on masking all along and the other one wasn't. And now they're both going to be, you know, that one hasn't really changed. The other one has now said, no, we are now a mask required in the classroom, certain spaces, that sort of thing. Testing will increase on that campus. The other campus, the testing has continued all along. So it it is a space where we have the tools. We just have to, to mobilize them again. And what we can see is that when you actually have a highly, and, and you're, you're the health expert, so you tell me, but when you have a highly vaccinated community, okay, in both of the cases on both of these campuses, the faculty are vaccinated at 92% plus, okay? And the students as well are very high up in the 90s. You're in a better state to be able to control things. And so this is a space where I think campuses can actually be, you know, something to say, let's look at that small city known as Brown University or Boston University or University of Michigan and say, what can these places do to show us how to how to function maybe yeah. on the outside? Or am I kind of being a little more optimistic than I should be? No, I think that's right. I think that we are, though, kind of unique populations because our vaccination rates are so much higher mm-hmm. than that of the average American city, even right. the most highly vaccinated American city. Right. Um, so, so we are a little bit unique in terms of testing protocols. So it's interesting. I'm going to comment both in general, but then also specifically around our policies at Brown. Um, we, uh, when, when we actually mandated vaccinations for all of our students, like it's, like I said, for our students, faculty, and staff, with very, very, very few exceptions or exemptions. Um, as of kind of much earlier this year, coming back in the, in the fall, and now we're mandating boosters. Um, when we mandated vaccinations, previously to that, we had been doing um, regular testing of everyone on campus. We then decreased that asymptomatic testing. Right. Um, and as we start coming back with Omicron, an important thing to think about with testing, um, having that asymptomatic PCR testing made a lot of sense, makes sense still for the unvaccinated because they're highly likely to get sick. They're more likely to be infectious based on what we've seen. Um, Again, preliminary data could change, but preliminary data is that um, the unvaccinated are more likely to be, to to get symptoms and then to transmit. Um, But for the vaccinated, as we move into Omicron, there are some questions about how useful those asymptomatic screening PCRs are. Additionally, as we talk about breaking isolation using testing, Mm -hmm. a really important distinction to make is that we should never use a PCR to get someone out of isolation. A PCR or molecular test Mm -hmm. is going to stay positive for weeks, um, if not months, after you've had COVID. So what you really need, the kind of test that you need if you want to use testing to get people out of isolation early is the antigen test, the things like the Binax Now or EMED or Quidel, iHealth. That's the test that you want to use to determine whether someone can move out of isolation. What most of us are saying is that you should have two negative tests at least a few hours apart, preferably 24 hours apart, Mm -hmm. to show that you're truly not infectious. The challenge that I'm going to say about using testing to break isolation is that we don't know what to do scientifically 
with people who stay positive on an antigen test 11 days out Mm -hmm. or 13 days out. So there's this worry of it's, there's some true value to using antigen testing to get people out of isolation earlier, but there's also a lot of scientific unknowns. So I would say as a campus, undertake that only if you feel like you have really good public health guidance Mm -hmm. to work it through with you in real time to handle it if someone does test positive at day nine still. This is really great information. Uh, Thank you. Uh, If you are new to the show, I want to just welcome you. This is Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe. Uh, My guest today is Dr. Megan Ranney from uh, Brown University. Uh, Dr. Ranney is an emergency physician, researcher, and national advocate for innovative approaches to public health. She's also the academic dean at the School of Public Health at Brown University. Uh, We uh, will be back next week on Wednesday the 19th with our January. January uh, think tank show. Uh, and that will be at our usual time at 12 noon. Other shows we are working on this uh, semester include building your bench, making sure that you have what you need to build that staffing bench for the spring hiring uh, the hiring time. Um, and uh, we are also working on a follow-up to our uh food insecurity show uh, that you all uh, enjoyed so much. So we are working on that as well. So uh, if you are interested in becoming part of the show today and asking a question, all you have to do is hit the microphone button at the bottom middle of your uh, phone and uh, that will send me a request and we'd be happy to have you come on up and ask a question. Uh, So talk a little bit more about Brown University's approach what they're committed. I know they're committed to teaching in person. Um, you just talked about uh, requiring boosters. Any other things that that is happening that you think is really working uh, at Brown? And what are you seeing for the fall uh, semester ahead? So I'll say our students have by and large not come back to campus yet. Um, we are a little bit lucky in that respect and mm-hmm. that, you know, our athletes are largely back already, but that um, the general kind of undergrad and graduate population doesn't, we don't start back classes um, for another week and a half. So we have a little bit of a breathing space compared to some campuses I know that started like last Monday. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. But we are doing that universal vaccination requirements of boosters for everyone who's eligible Um, So five months out from Pfizer, two months out from Johnson & Johnson, or six months out from Moderna, just to be a little more confusing. To make it more confusing, yes. (laughs) Um, We are requiring all of our students to test um, before return to campus. Mm -hmm. Um, We do have testing facilities open. Um, We have obviously much stricter uh, testing requirements for those very, very few unvaccinated people, faculty, staff, and students. And we are requiring masks um, universally. Um, We have also um, increased, put a big investment into improving our ventilation across Mm -hmm. campuses, whether again through the HVAC, um, through HEPA filters, through other sources of of ventilation. And with all of that in place, we feel really comfortable bringing our Mm -hmm. students back. Um, and teaching in person. Now we are making sure that there are recorded or kind of online options available mm-hmm. for those who are in isolation, knowing that Omicron is going to spread, um, as well as for those who maybe are immunosuppressed or have other really high risk conditions and don't want to be in person. But um, students don't come to college to go to school online, and as a professor 
teaching online is tough um, unless I have had adequate time and mm-hmm. like have space to create a really great pedagogical experience. Um, and really, the reality is, again, it's this weird paradox moment where for those of us who are fully vaccinated, particularly those of us who are boosted, when you add on the layers of a key testing before you come back, general community precautions, high quality masks, chance of any of us getting seriously ill from Omicron is really, really, really mm-hmm. low. And so then when you balance that risk versus benefit, the benefit to staff, to teachers, to kids of being back in person is so much higher than the risk of a severe illness, given those other precautions that we have in place, that we've actually kind of put our flag in the ground saying we're going to resume in-person classes. And I know that this is something that many, many other universities have done. Mm -hmm. The thing to be aware of, though, is that uh, there is a high possibility at any of our universities um, or community colleges that there will be some outbreaks of symptomatic disease. Mm -hmm. Again, not hospitalizations, which is the big thing, but of symptomatic disease. And so we're also creating protocols for how to deal with that, how to help kids, as you acknowledged, make sure that they've got those care packages that are needed to make sure that they can be safe and well-fed and well-hydrated and making sure they're checked in on and all of that kind of stuff. Um, But, you know, I've been... Since the beginning of the pandemic, I have been incredibly frustrated by the people that say that COVID is just the flu. That's not mm-hmm. true for the unvaccinated. Right. That's not true for Omicron for the unvaccinated. Right. But for those of us who are vaccinated and boosted, it starts to become closer to the flu or even to a, just a really bad cold. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't. it's not appropriate to shut down our learning for that. So there's, there's this last little bit of kind of playing with things, with having better masks available, with, again, improving ventilation, but feel very strongly that whenever possible, we need to be in person. Um, and, uh, of course, with a recognition that, you know, we're a, a university where um, a lot of our students are on campus, those that aren't are, you know, a close by off campus. We don't have a lot of people that live at home. We're not... Um, and, and that we do, you know, we do have resources to invest in making sure that we have good testing and, and ventilation. So I, I recognize that we have a, a bit of privilege, um, yeah. but, but I so deeply believe um, that this is possible. And I will say, just in terms of putting my money where my mouth is, um, I'm sending my own kids to public school mm-hmm. in the midst of Omicron. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I feel like if I'm asking public schools to be open, yeah. I sure as heck should figure out a way to keep universities open. Right. And, and I think that there's, you know, one of the things you've brought up a few times is this idea around ventilation. And, uh, you know, I, I will definitely tell you from a former uh, residence life professional who uh, spent the bulk of their uh, student affairs career uh, overseeing residence halls. I always like to say in the wintertime, uh, residence halls have two types of heat. It's either on off or inferno. And, you know, right now you're in a situation where, you know, it's cold out for much of the country. Uh, This idea of what's good ventilation and that sort of thing. And I've heard from many colleagues that they have invested more money in the last two years in ventilation than they have in anything else. And, And it's a good thing for a variety of reasons. But, but I want to key in on, on something you just said is that there's going to be a peak and there is going to be a surge. And, you know, we're going to talk in a minute. I have a question for you about, uh, about crisis and crisis management, which we're going to get to that in a minute. 
but that idea of how people feel in a crisis when you're seeing this number go up and we have plans in place, but we want to respond. You're now the phone's ringing and parents are on the phone and what's going on. And people are freaking out. We don't have enough of the good masks to hand out anymore. And what, you know, and then people are calling saying there's people without masks on in the dining hall. What do we do? You know, and they're like, you know, you've got all these things to manage. And we know that this conversation is right now calm to the point, you know, kind of we're in a box. We're literally in a box on your phone talking about this. Okay. But without all of the chaos happening around you, my, my point in saying this to the folks who are listening, who are running these campuses and, and running the response is step outside and put yourself in a box for a minute. And mm -hmm. think about what you need to do to make sure that your protocols and everything are happening at the right level, that you are able to engage correctly, that you are using the, the tools that you have in place that you know are working and that maybe you just need a little more of or a little less of. You need to trust yourself and not be consumed by the noise. Um, so... Uh, I want to get to an audience question. Tracy, Tracy has joined us up on the stage. Welcome, Tracy, to Office Hours. This is uh, Dr. Rani. What is your question? Hi, Dr. Rani. Um, my, my day job, I'm a, I edit a weekly newspaper in southeastern Massachusetts, and they cover, of course, public schools a lot. And um, I remember back when the, uh, the pandemic first started, they were putting a lot of faith in the ventilation process for the HVAC system, ultraviolet, and that was going to be the, the save all of, of everything in it. It hasn't been mentioned for a long, long time. And that now that the Omicron is coming back and you, you, you bring it up again, I was wondering how effective it, is it for schools? I mean, they, they have teachers being absent. The district I have has 40 teachers out, 28 could be COVID. They're not sure about the others. And hundreds of kids. And um, I just wanted to know how to, how to look at that as I'm covering these, these stories. Thank you, Tracy. I love that question. Um, and I think of it in a couple of ways. So the first thing is to recognize that whatever is happening in the larger community is going to affect those of us that are present in the schools, whether they're primary, secondary, or, you know, higher education schools. And what we actually saw last week in schools across the U.S., but certainly those of us here in the Northeast, is that we had a huge number of faculty or teachers and students who were sick none of them caught it in school because school had been closed for two weeks. They'd all caught it out and about um, doing holiday activities, traveling, having get-togethers with family. Um, and so the, the rates as of last week really reflected community spread more than school spread. And in fact, that's one of the things that we've seen throughout the pandemic is that as community levels of COVID go up, more people who are affiliated with an educational institution test positive for COVID, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the transmission is happening in the educational institution. Um, and we're finding actually that in many ways, so it was interesting here in Rhode Island, we actually looked at rates of COVID among primary and secondary school students who were in class versus distance learning there was an option for students to um, elect for distance learning. Most of our public school students, or many of them, came back last September, September of 2020, pre-vaccines, right, for, for those kids, pre-vaccines for everyone. We found that the infection rates were similar 
if not the same. And some in some space in some communities, the distance learning infection rates were actually higher mm. than those of the kids that were in school. Again, because of that community spread aspect. Um, when you put in place these various mitigation measures, you reduce school spread. Now you're not going to make it go completely away. And the biggest risk space, of course, is those meals. And so for those of us that can find ways to separate our students during meals and separate our staff, yeah. most of the outbreaks at hospitals actually occurred in break rooms mm -hmm. when physicians and nurses and other staff sat together and shared a meal. Um, so the, the mask really plays a critical role. In terms of not having heard a lot about ventilation, my guess is that you just didn't hear it talked about. It's definitely something that schools and public health officials have been working on throughout, um, but I think that it's not as exciting of a topic to talk about, yeah. <laughs> um, which is probably why I haven't been hearing about it. So ho hopefully that answers your questions. I appreciate that question. Thank you so much, Tracy, for that. And um, again, anyone else who might want to have a, ask a question, please feel free to come on up on request to come on up on stage. Uh, and Tracy, do you have a follow-up? You're on mute in case you're trying to talk. Yeah, now? Okay. Yep. Uh, you mentioned the, uh, the fact that kids aren't always bringing it home from school. The transmission rate is low there. My sister-in-law is an ER nurse in Connecticut. She's got it twice from her grandkids bringing it home from school. And she had another member of the family who ended up dying because his granddaughter brought it home from school. And they have a lot of unmasked the kids people in their area. Is, is this an anomaly or... That's a great question. So no, so I, when I say that we're not seeing a lot of transmission in schools, we're not seeing a lot of transmission in school. Again, Omicron, we're going to see more transmission than we saw with the other variants, period. But in general, with schools that have masking, in addition, right, so the, the schools that have masking have much lower transmission rates than schools mm -hmm. without masking. Um, vaccination helps, ventilation helps. There's no single thing that completely stops transmission, but the more of these measures that you put in place, the higher the the better the ability to stop transmission in schools. So I, I didn't mean to imply that it there's never transmission in schools. It really depends on what what measures have been placed in schools. The other point that you just made, Tracy, I think is really really important. Um, yes, kids can get and spread COVID, and so although kids are lower risk, if they are living with older adults, they can certainly bring COVID into the household and spread it to others. This is why vaccination matters so much, right. both for our children and our young adults, but also for the rest of us, right? So making sure that any older adults in the household are vaccinated um, is critically important. Making sure they're boosted is critically important. Um, and, and again, that's why when I was talking about the various types of learning, I do recognize that there are groups, particularly the immunosuppressed, people who are transplant patients who have um, autoimmune congenital disorders who are on certain medications, who are under active treatment for cancer. There are groups for whom the vaccines work less well, and we got to do everything we can to protect them. So there needs to be some sort of option to allow those people who are very high risk to be able to not be exposed. Um, and, and, and I think that that's an important part of us being a, a, a thoughtful society. Um, but in general, if a kid happens, God forbid, to catch COVID, if they're vaccinated, their parents are vaccinated, again, it's not it's not going to end up being a serious or severe illness. Um, Thank you for that. I've, I've been very concerned because well, my sister and my brother, my bro brother and sister-in-law have 
comorbidities for both of the yin yang and i've been really worried about them she she's had lyme disease as well as she's had a wonderful year last year oh. so. well and so actually i think your mention of lyme is important and we didn't talk much or um laura and i haven't talked uh I don't know if we talked in our pre-talk about this at all, but one of the things that is raised to me a lot is the issue of long COVID, which certainly we see sometimes with Lyme. Um, I'm actually leading a consortium um, here at Brown looking at long COVID, looking at the current data that's available. Um, There's folks at Yale who are creating a a cohort study of people with long COVID. It's a bunch of research that's ongoing. Um, We have very, very little data on um, the prevalence of long COVID in kids um, the best studies that have been done suggest that it's quite low, um, but but there's a lot to learn there. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't want to make it sound as if getting COVID is just because you don't get hospitalized, whatever. Um, you still want to try to avoid getting it if you can. Again, that's where vaccinations, masks, ventilation are all important. Well, and we had a we had a show a few uh, just before the break on long COVID. We had uh, the director of disability services at Boston University, Dr. Lori. Um, mm. uh, I'm, I'm spacing on her last name, but but the, Dr. Lori there was talking about it. And one of the things that was really important was this idea of what is the what the disability community is looking at is what's happened with the results of the long COVID. They've had students come back after having COVID and they have this COVID fog that people Mm -hmm. are talking about. Um, And this idea of what does that mean in terms of the services they're providing? What does that mean in terms of, uh, you know, is it, is it a permanent thing? Is it something that is short term? Uh, And so as higher ed administrators and professionals, we're going to be spending a lot of time talking about this because it is that uh, we're literally building the plane while flying, trying to give services um, in this environment. Um, And so that's, is super important. Um, I want to thank you. I want to thank Tracy for all of her questions. Those were great. And I want to focus a bit on, on, as I said before, Tracy came up to the microphone on this idea of crisis management. Um, One of the frustrating aspects of managing this pandemic, even for those who have been well accustomed to crisis management is it's constant. There is no stopping. Um, and one of the most important aspects of crisis management is preparation. And anyone who's had to write a standard operating procedure manual or do uh, tabletop exercises or anything like that knows you have to prepare before a crisis because then it, you're going to have a more successful management of the crisis. Um, but with the variants changing, there are those who feel pr- they don't just don't feel prepared uh, because the scope of the pandemic continues to shift. Uh, what do you say to someone who's feeling they can't catch up with their preparation needs? They literally feel like they're on, you know, this ongoing, the, the, the damn, the damn thing won't stop moving and I can't catch it. Okay. What do you tell that person? I feel your pain. (laughs) I mean, I mean, I think that's honestly, it's the first thing. I mean, if I channel my inner Brene Brown, it is acknowledging that this is impossible for everyone. Right. right. We've not in our lifetimes been in the midst of a pandemic like this. Right. It's dragging on now entering its third year where the science keeps changing. There's new variants. There's new treatments. There's new policy. Right. Like you just Mm -hmm. you keep saying and I actually think this is one of our hugest 
failures is that we keep saying, oh, it's done. Yeah, it's and, we try done. To, <laughs> right, and we try to put it out of our heads and we yeah. forget that we still need to be planning for the next thing. Cause you know what? There's going to be something else. Right. And, and that's, you know, we all, it was, we're all getting vaccinated July 4th. We're back to normal. Ooh, here's Delta. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then it was the holidays are going to be great. Delta's right. going to be gone. We're all getting boosted. Here's Omicron. Yeah. So, so I, there's there's days where I literally feel like I'm in the, the precursor to the movie Wally. Like, you know, you, if you ever watch Wally and you're like, how did we get here? Okay. Like, I feel like we're in that. This is how we got here. We have, we have literally are going to be in a situation where, you know, in a hundred years, people are going to be up in a spaceship and not living on this planet because we've screwed it up so much. Uh, That's for a lot of reasons, but yeah, for a lot of reasons, not just the pandemic, but a lot of things happening all at the same time. Absolutely. But yeah, I mean, so I think that's part of it is exactly the Wally and just giving yourself a little bit of grace and giving your staff a little bit of grace and also knowing that all of your staff and all of your faculty and all of your students are in the same boat and everybody's exhausted and everybody's crispy and everybody just wants this to be done. And I feel like that's the starting point. And sometimes that's the best place to start communication right now is, is that this just sucks and there's no way around it and we all want it to be done. And then the next thing is using this as an opportunity to think, as you said, Laura, to think about what your processes are, what your key messages are, who you can call on when you are in a crisis, mm-hmm. and how what you need to anticipate. So things you need to anticipate as you're bringing students back to campus. How are you going to meet masking needs? How are you going to meet testing needs? How are you going to find out about positive tests and take care of students, faculty, or staff who are in isolation? How are you going to handle communication with parents or concerned family members? How are you going to handle communication with a community who might be worried that you're going to be introducing a surge into their community? Um, And how are you going to stay up to date on changing regulations and policies and what best practices? I think those are all, you know, hopefully everybody here has got some sort of outline of how you do that. And it's just going back to those basics and reminding yourself that you've done this before And then I remind myself that the one thing that I can say about this Omicron surge is that it's going to be a quicker up and quicker down. Mm -hmm. Um, I can't say exactly when it's going to happen. If I have learned anything about COVID, it is that my crystal ball is horribly broken. (laughs) Um, But uh, the current data suggests that, you know, we'll see the surges up take about a month, month, month and a half, and the down slope is about the same. Mm-hmm. Um, so by March, we should all be in a much better situation. And then hopefully, hopefully we'll have a reprieve for the rest of this academic year. And uh, you see, and this is where my brain is like, just in time for spring break. So people can go somewhere else and bring back another variant. Like okay? oh, <laughs> so, honest to God, literally that's what's in my head right now. I'm like, yeah. that sounds great. Now they'll leave campus. I'll come back with something else. Woo. Okay. <laughs> I hear you. I hear. And, and they might. And I think, but I think that that's important. And so the, the part of this is as we get to the other side of the surge, um, to not say, all right, now I can mothball all of this and not like, I know we all want to go back to thinking about all the awesome things that we were thinking about in that pre COVID landscape that feels further and further away. Uh, but we've got to maintain those systems to identify and prevent the next surge. And so one of the really important things in communication, I think is reminding people, listen, we're upping our protocols for this short time. While we're in the midst of this, we look forward to 
getting to a point where we can start where we can loosen up again, getting to the other side of this surge. But remember, this may happen again. Mm-hmm. Um, I go back to the, um, what is it? The Stockdale paradox that if those of you that have read good to good to great, right. The Jim Collins story about the, um, and I'm going to forget the name of the general, um, uh, was a POW in Vietnam who talked about, um, kind of the difference between the folks that survived being a prisoner of war and those who didn't. And it wasn't about whether you had hope and optimism or not, um, it was about, did you have pragmatic optimism? Mm. That the people that deeply believed they were going to be out by Christmas, when they didn't get out by Christmas, their spirits were crushed and they gave up. The people that made it were the people who created small achievable goals for themselves. I'm going to kind of remind myself of Shakespeare's plays or whatever and saying, I believe that at some point I will get out but I don't know when it's going to be. And so having that pragmatic optimism, I think is critical for all of us right now of not telling ourselves, oh, this surge is going to be done and then COVID's gone. Because that just sets us up for being disappointed again. Right. I love that you've brought that up because I think it is definitely uh, one of the things that I've I've been talking to my, my clients and to my students about is we need to be nimble. We need to use the tools we have uh, you, uh, you know, said it earlier that, you know, teaching online isn't a great opportunity and, you know, all that sort of thing. So I want this to be the best experience possible um, for all of us. But I think the other thing that um, I, I've been trying to push with people is that normal is, is right now. Now is normal. This is normal. And we may not like it. We may not like really love this normal, um, and it, but it doesn't mean you have to fester in a negativity about normal. Um, I had a wonderful holiday season. I got to see people I loved. I planned it. I bought, I, I front loaded on buying a rapid test so that when I left the house, we knew we were okay. Um, we took our masks, we did our thing. We did all the stuff we're supposed to do. And there are ways to scale that. There are ways to have those experiences and make that happen, um, not only in your personal life, but in the long term. That idea of, of avoiding it is definitely, I think, the thing that mentally is, is keeping us all back. Mm-hmm. And this idea of avoiding it is, you know, I've got people uh, in my life who literally said, F this, I'm out. And they left and went to states where COVID doesn't exist yeah. in terms of how it's treated. And those kind of, I that kind of la-la land of let's just go back and make believe it's not there isn't helping us as a society. And as a community on a college campus, that's not it either. If I were talking to a client right now about something, I'd say, just like we always had a rain plan, or a snow plan, you need to have a surge plan. And whether that be for residence hall openings, commencement, spring weekend, football games, whatever it is, you need to have your surge plan and you need to have your, your like, this is where we're going plan. And when you plan and you actually have that plan right there and you know it's going to it's it's a good plan it may not be perfect no plan's perfect but at least it gives you what you need at least you're going into this in a way that you're not m- feeling you're so racing on the treadmill okay you're you're more in a trot 
Okay. Um, you know, I do want to bring up something you just said is that this won't be the last surge. This won't be the last variant. And, you know, with the latest CDC recommendations being confusing, um, I know what I'm telling people uh, about how to kind of move their way through the fog of the confusing uh, recommendations. What do you tell people about uh, getting the best information and, and knowing how to use it for your own community? Because a Brown University is different than, say, a Rhode Island college, right? Like they're two, they're, they're in the same state. You literally could drive from one to the other in, in less than a half hour, barring traffic on 95. But, you know, it's two different campuses with two different populations. How do you work? Uh, how do you uh, tell somebody to say, hey, how do you uh, take that that recommendation, that guidance, and make it work for your campus in a way that's actually informed? It's a great question, Laura. And I think, so I'm going to start by acknowledging that each of our, you know, as you said, each of our states is quite different. And yeah. so my first go-to for our leaders of higher education is their state protocols, because each state is going to interpret this a little bit differently. And you don't want to go looser than your state guidelines. Um, your state in an ideal world, again, knowing that each Department of Health or HHS is quite different, um, in an ideal world, that's, they're going to be helping to interpret it for you. Uh, here in Rhode Island, they do. In Massachusetts, they do. I know that there are states where they don't. So that's, that's my first go-to. Um, my second go-to would normally be the CDC, and I'm a huge fan of the CDC, but I also feel like right now it's super, super confusing. And so that's where I actually send people to trade organizations mm. um, to kind of whatever your, um, you know, whether it's, or, or to your kind of trade publications, whether it's Chronicles of Higher Ed, whether it's kind of whatever kind of organization it is that you're part of, that those, for, for medical schools, right, we use like AAMC, that those organizations are helping to translate a lot of these evolving guidelines and policies into terms that make sense. And then you can make these decisions knowing that you're backed up by a larger consortium of folks. The third option um, is to work with trusted public health and higher education leaders on a national level. Yep. Um, our trade organizations and our state departments of health may or may not be what we want them to be. And we may need to move. Uh, we may feel a need to move more quickly or more rigorously than we perceive than those are. And so that's where folks like you, Laura, can be helpful. Um, but that kind of work. If you have the capability to have a medical advisor, you know we're all going to have some sort of medical advisor. But um, working working with national experts can be quite helpful in that space as well, especially as these. Guidelines are shifting so, so quickly. Um, I think, you know, those of us that are larger universities have an easier time of it um, because we're more likely to have physicians or public health professionals who are on faculty right. who can help interpret things. But um, for some of the smaller folks, that's a little tougher. And so um, kind of finding that network out there and using resources like you can be really helpful. No, I appreciate that plug. Um, <laughs> I also want to say it's honest, you know. Yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think there's there's three things I would I have been telling people. Number one, uh, your if you have a health center on campus, a health educator on campus, they are typically members of ACHA, American College Health Association. They've put out very strong guidance, and you can use that to help kind of demystify this. Uh, ask them what's out there. Also, look at your number two. Look at your peer institutions. And when I'm talking about peer institutions here, I'm talking about what type of schools are similar to you physically, 
Okay. So if you are a small residential college with say 2000 people living on campus, look at other schools like that and create your own network. Uh, if you're a director of residence life at one of these places, create a, a little five to 10 people that get on a zoom call every so often and have conversations about what's happening on your campus. If you're a vice president for student affairs, same thing. Um, so use your network well, nurture that network. And the third thing is I would say is write this down, make sure that you are going surge to surge to surge, knowing what processes you're using and what's actually helpful. Um, we are coming up on just a few more minutes uh, left in today's show. I want to thank uh, Dr. Megan Ranney for her time. I want to make sure you are all aware that we will be back in our usual time and place, which is Wednesdays at 12 noon next week uh, with our uh, think tank show. We have a big think tank coming back next week. Uh, and so um, various members of our think tank will be here and we will be talking about all the current issues coming up on this uh, spring semester. Um, I want to make sure you all know that uh, Dr. Rani is very prolific on Twitter. And if you want to follow her, you can find her at Megan Ranney, uh, a very easy uh, uh, handle to find. Uh, so give her a follow and uh, make sure you are paying attention to her uh her tweets and her thoughts and her uh, insight. Uh, I want to give you the last word for the show uh, before I sign people off. Dr. Ranny, anything you would like them to know uh, and uh, please feel free to share. Thank you. First of all, a huge thank you to you for creating this space. I am now enthusiastic about following along with your podcasts um, or your fireside chats. But I mean, I really think the last thing is just a moment of gratitude for yourselves. And I hope you can all end this by feeling just a little bit of gratitude internally for what you've been doing for the last two, two plus years. Um, this is a tough moment for everyone and you are doing your best to hold your campuses together and to create a safe space for faculty and staff and students and to keep our mission of education moving forwards. And so give yourself that, that grace and that appreciation. Um, and, and know that, you know, things are just going to keep changing, but that you've done it this far and you can keep doing it. Absolutely. That's very important news uh, and very important sentiment to be sharing with people. Please give yourself grace and please give yourself uh, a moment to yourself. And don't forget the things that matter to you uh, and take part in those. Um, as we sign off today, uh, I would be remiss not to uh, acknowledge a member of our Fireside family. Bob Saget uh, did pass away yesterday uh, and uh, it was sudden. It was uh, very upsetting. Uh, as someone who spent uh, seven years of their life doing stand-up comedy, uh, I found uh, Bob to be one of the uh, most exciting, uh, innovative, raunchy uh, comedians ever. And uh, I hope he and Betty White are toasting the world uh, right now. And so thank you all for being here. And I do hope all of you are able to join us again uh, next week and in future uh, episodes of Office Hours. Uh, if you want to follow me, I have provided you with my link tree with all of my links right here, and it will be here for the replay. Thank you all for being here. Be well, be safe, and buy new masks. Have a good one, everybody. <laughs>